This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, opinion leaders, and authors. Season 10, Episode 6, The Eve of the California Recall Election. The second recall election of a California governor in 171 years of statehood takes place tomorrow, Tuesday, September 14th. With us today, to help us understand the whys and hows of this historic vote, is Professor David McEwen, Chair of the Political Science Department at Sonoma State University. David joins us today from his home in Sonoma. Hi, David, and welcome to the show. Well, hello, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Well, thank you very much, David. I appreciate that. David, frankly, why is Governor Gavin Newsom only the second governor in our 171 years as a state to face the voters in a recall? Isn't a recall election the political equivalent of the death penalty? What has Gavin Newsom done to merit such a drastic sanction? Yeah, that's a that's a very good good place to start because right, it is the political equivalent of the death penalty and and if we were going to see any changes in the recall or initiative process, the voters would have to weigh in on it and they're much more likely to support altering the death penalty in the state than they are to alter the initiative process or the recall process. Uh, is in a sense a, a place where voters seem to cut off their nose despite their face. They want to be asked to dance. They want to say no. And so getting the recall process changed uh, may be problematic because the voters probably would vote against that. But if you look at the current state of the recall, you look at this particular governor and some of the reasons why we have only seen two governors, say, in the last 20 years, less than the last 20 years, who face this ultimate sanction, there's some reasons for that. One is that California is a state that not that long ago was was red. It was Republican. You even had a place where uh, not several decades ago you could secure the party endorsement of both parties and run unopposed in an election. It's always been a, a state that has had, if you will, an establishment within both parties. But now in this era, not just in the Trump era, but really in the post Prop 13, post term limits era of the last couple of decades, California has become a state that has had many more, much more outliers within the party and interests with outlying and kind of moving out to the polls, just like we've seen nationally. So you have, for example, the incumbent, Governor Newsom, appealing to progressives, talking about health care and single payer, talking about different elements that help him deliver the progressive base. I mean, that's why you have right Bernie Sanders on the air. That's why you have with Warren on the air, that's why you go out and get Barack Obama to go on the air. You've got to, you have to excite that base. You certainly move to the left in that regard. And the Republicans, on the other hand, in this state are somewhat betwixt and between. You don't have a statewide Republican elected since 2006, Arnold Schwarzenegger, who, who really was like a moonlighting Republican. He wasn't someone who was a hardcore Republican in any real sense. He had put some things on the ballot. He had tried out some things on the ballot. But Larry Elder, for example, hasn't done any of those things. He's an outsider. The California Republican Party is also kind of a multi-headed hydra. You've got anti-tax conservatives. You've got social conservatives. You've got a moderate named Kevin Falconer, a moderate named Arnold Schwarzenegger, and a player to be named later. So, so the movement of that party out to the tails, the movement of the Democratic Party out to the tails, combined with generational change and a place where are you going to adapt 
or pay attention to what's going on, on in the streets in terms of social justice, in terms of what's happening in the wake of the tragic killing of George Floyd. All of those things have challenged each party. And, and there's another element to this that's quite practical. After Donald Trump leaves the presidency in January, you have obviously the insurrection in January 6th. He leaves a few weeks later. In, in the March time period, the California Republican Party brought in a number of former Trump staffers from the RNC and from operations in Washington, D.C. to take over the staffing elements of the California Republican Party, and the recall was already in process and moving forward. So you have, if you will, these folks from Trump land who come in and alter the dynamic and the approach of what the party was doing while the recall is starting to format and kind of grow. And in that process, you see an outsider like Larry Elder. You see someone who tries to move to the middle and potentially be an insider like Kevin Falconer. And then a whole bunch of other Republicans to try to push against a guy who was elected in 2018 by an incredible margin, 62-38, can raise a lot of money, and is a juggernaut of political power himself. All of that set up, if you will, this recall. And it looks like Gavin Newsom is going to win running away and handily. And that will revive his political fortunes and put him back on the national stage. You know, it's amazing. The animus on the part of the Republicans, as you just described, in setting up this recall against Gavin Newsom, it looks as though it's going to backfire because assuming that Gavin Newsom wins in double digits, and that's what the polls seem to indicate. We'll come on to the polls in a minute. But assuming that he does win by double digits, they have essentially, as a result of giving him this midterm race, if you will, that he is likely to win handily, it essentially rockets him back into the national leagues when, just as just as Andrew Cuomo, who was his arch rival, the former governor of New York, self-destructed, he's gone away. And, and it appears that while the vice president, Kamala Harris, is a friend, we all know how friendships, how long friendships last in politics. Uh, <laughs> and she, she may be the candidate in 2024, but on the other hand, Gavin Newsom it seems as though the Republicans have given him a gift. Do you see it that way at all? Yeah, certainly, and punctuated by the, the Larry Elder candidacy. There are a number of things here that work to Gavin Newsom's favor, right? Fundamentally, the ground, the, the blueness of the state, the two-to-one party registration, the ability to raise that money that, that I talked about a moment ago. But it's more than that. He's able to move forward and place himself in the national conversation mm -hmm. with the presidency and administration that's had a difficult four to six weeks while he's turned around his political fortunes, Afghanistan, the infrastructure bill, what things look like moving forward in the month of September for this administration. If Gavin Newsom were to have lost or to lose tomorrow in this election as a result of Andrew Cuomo leaving in New York, Republicans would have an incredible gift and moment to set aside the Biden administration agenda, move forward to 2022 in the midterms, and to take over the House with Kevin McCarthy elevated as speaker. That's all that's at stake. That, that obviously would lead to talk about Donald Trump coming back to run, whether or not he does that or not, but reviving and keeping alive the Trump movement. Now you move to a place where you have a vice president who, who's had some, some obstacles and some difficulties in Washington, D.C., fairly or unfairly, that, that has been hit on with her. And you have a, a president who's clearly 
lost a little bit off his fastball. As you move forward in these tough times, and now you have a California governor whose political fortunes have been revived, and they can move forward in a big, big way in those 2022 midterms as Nancy Pelosi faces a restless house, as Dianne Feinstein faces what comes next in her political career. That puts Gavin Newsom, Alex Padilla, the next wave of Democrats in the driver's seat about what comes next for the Democratic Party beginning in California. Puts California front and center. And obviously the vice president, the political twin of Gavin Newsom in some ways, is her fortunes are wrapped up in his fortunes. So that's one reason everyone wants to be here today is to latch on to that and the star power of Gavin Newsom. There are some practical policy consequences and, and differences that he could make. There are some difficulties they have in Sacramento. But nonetheless, it is a gift that the Republicans appear to have given him because they didn't have an Arnold Schwarzenegger there. And they didn't have someone to revive their, their sagging fortunes as a party and someone to unite them. And they had an opportunity to do that, and they took a pass. And I'll add one more element here. We know that from the census data, the nation is changing rapidly. That challenges both political parties, and it especially challenges the California Republican Party here in California. You, you have double-income, no-kid Google zillionaires who live in San Francisco who don't want to pay taxes, and they don't care who you sleep with or what your lifestyle is. And in many ways, they're libertarians, but they don't move to the Republican Party because they think the Republican Party is, is homophobic, for example. The same thing happened to Latinos and Latinas after 187 and 209. Mm -hmm. There's some Republican consultants that, that debate this, but the smart ones, I would say, understand that taking hard view and a hard line on issues of immigration when you have a, a constituency that is oriented to small business, is suspicious of government, oriented to family, is Roman Catholic, and is, is staunchly pro-life, those are nominally Republicans, and they don't move to that party because they think the party is racist. I'm not saying the party's homophobic or racist. That is the perception by these voting blocs. You have to visit that nationally as a party. Democrats have equal problems on the other side, but that is where California and the battleground for the future of the Republican Party I think is an important element if they want to be relevant in future election cycles because they have that opportunity to do so in lower ballot statewide races like state controller or AG. So something to watch out of this recall. Let's just come back to the Latino vote because you referenced that. Now, the numbers that I've looked at show that the population of California is 30 plus percent Latino. However, registered voters are lower than 30%. I think it's about 27, 28%. I saw that early on in the recall that Governor Newsom wasn't doing very well among the Latino votes. I saw one poll that showed 54% of Latinos were willing to support the recall. Has he made up with the Latino community? Have they rallied around? Are they now supporting him to stay in office? Yeah, that's a very good question because if you look at kind of all ballots and you look at what's gone out about a little less than 30 percent of all ballots that have gone out have gone out to latino households so it's about 27 percent right in there but uh, only less than one in five ballots that have come back are latino mm -hmm. so they are lagging if you will or the the older whiter voter is is more uh, overrepresented in the early vote sample so one thing to watch is is what not only what turnout looks like tomorrow in terms of Republicans seem to be holding on their ballots, buying the Trump argument that you can't trust the U.S. mail or that the only way to, 
to deal with this uh, with voting is to drop it off yourself. But we do see a lagged effect with Latinx voters. And that's an important element of how California is changing. And I'll give you a, a pertinent example. The voters may be older, whiter, and habitual voters, but the emerging electorate is a younger cohort that is multiracial, city-oriented, has children in schools, and so their policy priorities are very different than that habitual voting population. And the clashes, therefore, come at the ballot box. They come through the direct democracy process, through ballot measures, through recalls, and those clashes occur not only statewide, but they occur for the DA and what's going to happen for the degree to which they embrace social justice and criminal justice reform or not. What happens for planning commissions in terms of zoning and quality of life? What do school boards do? That's where that clash moves because you pay attention not only to the ethnicity of the population, but the age cohort, the, the band, if you will, of, of 18 to 35 or 18 to 30 year olds, 25 to 35 year olds. Who they look, what they look like, who they are, and how they're aging and coming of age to become habitual voters. And that clash is huge in California. But we see that clash in Minnesota, in Georgia. It is what is going to happen across the country over the next 20 to 40 years. That's fascinating. Just as 50 years ago, as the baby boomers were moving into voting era, as they turned 18 or 21, and of course, we we baby boomers got the vote in 1970 when the when the voting age was reduced to 18. It seems as though there's another huge generational wave and shift which is taking place before our eyes, as you've just outlined, David. Not only in California but nationwide, and we saw the we saw the effects over the last 40 to 50 years of this wave of baby boomers voting. It sounds as though. This new wave that you've just that you've just outlined may have a similar, very radical directional effect on U.S. politics. I, I think so more broadly. I mean, one of the key elements that I pay attention to is, is what's called the RAE, the RAE, the Rising American Electorate. It, it is younger, it is more urban, more ethnic, and it, it exists in areas that we call the emerging suburbs or exurbs. It's not in the cities, it's attached to suburbs. It's an official census designation, these exurbs. And that's where you see, use an example, that's where you see more female voters than male voters. You see more voters of color, they're younger, and maybe they didn't finish college, especially because of COVID, but they completed three or three and a half years of college. They are one paycheck away from difficulty in a household situation that's serious. Maybe they have a relative living with them, so they put off taking care of their vehicle or their own medical or health care because they can't afford it. And, and that crisis, that creation of, of a situation sets forth policy priorities and voting preferences that are dramatically different. So we have seen in the recall just in the last day or two an uptick in Latinx turnout that is approaching what those ballots look like in terms of returned and the overall registration number, but it is lagged. So it means it will underperform just like younger voters. So think of those emerging voter populations coming of age in these 10 to 15 year voting cohorts, 10 to 15 year age voting cohorts in the midst of California usually suffering a quote unquote political earthquake every 15 or 20 years, Prop 13, term limits, the recall of Gray Davis, mm -hmm. the potential recall of Gavin Newsom. We're going to see these clashes compress 
while the party extremes are also kind of moving out. And that's going to make the no party preference voters, those purple people living in the exurbs who are emerging voter subsets, the deciders of a presidential election, of a gubernatorial election, of what happens at your local government. And that's fascinating to watch because it's rapidly changing our politics and moving it in directions faster than we could have thought, maybe even just as short as a decade ago. Now, David, we haven't talked about the polls yet. And of course, there's been a deluge of polls over the last couple of weeks here in California with regard to the recall. What do the current most reliable polls show the outcome of the race? Yeah, thank you for pointing to reliability of the polls. (laughs) (laughs) There are, you know, there is an ongoing problem with the legitimacy and validity of polls in the wake of what happened in 2016, in the wake of what happened in 2020. If we see, we have a sense of what we think will happen tomorrow. And if the governor loses, or I would even argue if he wins by less than eight points, it's a crisis for pollsters. People are either how we're conducting them or what's going on, and it could potentially be a huge problem. But what we are seeing overall when we aggregate the polls, and that's a problem mathematically when we do that, but when we aggregate like-minded polls with likely voters and in a universe that we are comfortable creating likely voter scenarios or stereotypes because they're habitual voters, when we look at that, we see that the, the governor is moving forward in a strong place, and he could win by better than 15 points mm. and maybe as much as 20 points. That means something like a 60-40 split. Uh, we're seeing this in the biggest polls. And the Newsom team has a projected turnout of 62% that, uh, the, for their model. At 62%, using a confidence interval and some of the math, they win going away at 15, 16 to 18 points. That's mm. on the no over the yes side. That is almost 20 points, and, and uh, I don't know if we can curse on uh, on the podcast, but that's a shellacking <laughs> on the say of that. Right? Right. Uh, if they win, if they win by better than 15 points, if they win by double digits, that's a solid win, not a landslide. At, at above 14, at that 15 point and higher, it's a landslide. They're looking at that potentially. That's one reason we see Joe Biden here. That's why we saw the vice president here and see Barack Obama on the air, because they believe they have the wind at their backs and can push forward. There was a poll that showed about four to five weeks ago that showed the race basically a dead heat. Right. Uh, this is the Survey USA poll. It's a hugely problematic poll for a number of reasons. It skews the Nate Silver 538 numbers and, and the output. It, it's, it's very problematic when you put that poll in there because Gavin Newsom has always been in a pretty strong place and voters didn't turn their attention until late. But there was no one thing that we could say that could upset this race and that would be events so you're talking about things like if the caldor fire had burned into and down and across south lake tahoe if south lake tahoe were burning this would be a different conversation in a different race it is the the power of events like that that can upset the best laid plans there's another element to this too and that is that the newsom team is is disciplined and strong they're they're campaign experts led by Ace Smith Jr., whose dad, of course, was, I believe, city attorney in mm-hmm. San Francisco, Ace Smith. But Ace Smith Jr. is the best get-out-the-vote person in the universe, in the world. And Ace, along with uh, Sean Clegg and a few others, put together an amazing team that uses those media images and those hits about Larry Elder and can identify with particular voter segments and get them out. So they are setting forth a very strong operation 
that has, I would argue, risen to the challenge of the last couple of weeks when the race seemed out of reach. So pay attention to whether it's a double-digit lead on the no over the yes and whether that double-digit lead reaches above 14, 15 points. Because if it does, that's a statement that he's back, revives, and has a national political picture or trajectory and especially as he moves closer to 20 points that's certainly the case Mm -hmm. let's just come back to the rising american electorate that that new young cohort that lives in the suburbs the exurbs that's more urban what are their issues for instance universal health care is that a big issue for them are they willing to pay higher taxes what are their what are their key issues that might determine the kind of big legislative issues and big political issues that are coming that will be coming down the road as this voter cohort really gets into into full swing in supporting and implementing their own personal political agenda. So this is why I love uh, being on your podcast. <laughs> you, that, that, that is a fantastic question, and, and, and here's why. If you look at this rising American electorate, this this younger cohort that's tends to be more urban, uh, generally more liberal, more ethnically diverse and rich, it's also an electorate that has in many ways traditional issue concerns with a few wrinkles. And what I mean by that is, look, they're concerned about their employment status under COVID. They're concerned about the nature of how we've worked. They were already not contingent employees, but they were less tied and less well traditional in their obligations to their jobs because they didn't see their jobs as a place that they were going to stay for long periods of time. So they're more transitory in their careers. As a result of being more transitory in their careers, they're less likely to have benefits that would accrue that might pay for things like retirement, health care, or provide benefits that are, if you will, part of a a traditional job that we might have seen a couple of decades ago. But they are especially receptive to things that provide them educational relief, student loan repayment, get them an advanced degree, these types of things, or provide them with with, uh, elder care or support for the relative or someone close to them who's cohabitating living in their household. Uh, in that sense. So the COVID and Zoom, if you want to think of it that way, have completely altered their orientation in this regard. But at the same time, issues like long-term care, health care, household finance, those traditional issues do persist with the rise in American electorate with this wrinkle. Issues around climate change or around insecurity of place and where you're at because of uh, the vagueness of weather or the, the, the vagaries of what will happen in terms of extreme weather events, they place global climate change in the top five of all issues, the top three for many of the younger cohorts, say 18 to 25. So that means that the issue of global climate change is impacting the perception of politics and society by these populations and age cohorts. We see differences as we move forward to say 35 to 45, 45 to 55 year olds, where global climate change, for example, is is a top issue, but it's in the top five to 10, as opposed to being in the top three to top five. And then cohorts that are older, same thing. So you start to see this, this saturating effect of emerging issues. And if you look at that and you come out of the recall and you win by 15 to 20 points, for example, that means that you have to look very closely at single-payer health care. You have to look very closely at solving the housing slash homelessness problem 
And you have to look very closely at having a moonshot around global climate change and dealing with that. If Gavin Newsom does those three things or can have a policy success with two of those three things, he's a political all-star if he can do that. And that catapults him further to the national stage. To do that, I think you also have to win with humility and grace. And so that'll be if they have a big win come Tuesday night to Wednesday morning, exhibiting humility and grace will go a long way to uh, pushing back against the lawsuits that the elder campaign will file along with the California Republican Party on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. And just make sure that Gavin doesn't have his victory party at the French Laundry in Napa. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I think I mean, winning with grace and winning with humility, that isn't that that isn't F-A-U-X, that isn't faux or fake. That's yes. hugely important. And I think that provides them an opportunity for change in terms of approach. You also should see, I think, after this, changes in the next couple of months with higher level staffing and changes to his approach to governing. That will help him as he rolls out his next state of the state and his next budget uh, early next year. Now, let's just come back to the 2020 midterm, the 2022 midterms in which he has to run again for, right. for governor. Of course, the presidential year 2024. Let's come back to the, to the 2022. The Democrats are hanging on by their fingernails onto about seven or eight formerly Republican House seats in Southern California, which the Republicans are just frothing at the mouth to sink their teeth into, and they've got a pretty good chance of winning them. But if Gavin Newsom walks away with this victory tomorrow, will that victory jeopardize the Republican the Republican red wave in terms of gaining those seven or eight seats in Southern California congressional seats, which would then probably catapult the Republicans into winning Congress? Yeah, so let's, let's do kind of some armchair analysis for, for your listeners here for, for how to kind of gain this when the president's popularity is less than 50 percent, according to Gallup, uh, the summer of the midterm year. So July of 2022, if his approval, if Biden's approval is less than 50 percent, average midterm loss is 35 seats. Mm. Democrats have a three seat majority, the closest majority they've had since 1893. If the president's popularity is below 50 percent, the likelihood of a Kevin McCarthy speakership is high. The road to that won't be through California. The map to that will be all across the country. I see. And, and California delivered the House to Nancy Pelosi in 2018. Uh, those emerging voter subsets, the Ray, participated at a huge rate in 2018. The Latinx population and young voters helped deliver in seven congressional seats in California, a change that moved out Republicans and brought in Democrats and essentially elected Nancy Pelosi, brought her back to the speakership in that sense. But if the president's popularity is less than 50 percent, the likelihood of California being that place is actually going to be pretty low because it'll be fought in places like Ohio, Missouri, uh, places like Wisconsin, Florida, Texas, uh, all kinds of places. The battleground will be all over the country. But nonetheless, Gavin Newsom will play an important role. And this is where I think it challenges them with their political approach. They have to join with their policy approach because counties that touch water 
counties that are not just across from San Francisco, but more inland and in the foothills. Those purple counties, not the red counties of California, but the purple counties of California have, have suffered. This is These are disaffected Democrats who voted for Newsom in 2018, but signed a recall petition and then looked at their alternatives on the ballot and, and probably slipped the election out or, or even cast a no. Uh, again, being asked to dance, but but don't want to necessarily dance with potential partners there. And as a result, that means you have to do things as a governor that appeal to the purple people and appeal to counties that aren't always on your side, but have concerns about COVID and children and need to be engaged in a different way. So that what you do on education, on healthcare, on the reemergence for us post-COVID in terms of a broader network of Californians, that will be the test of a successful reelection and governorship, because I think they're able to thwart this by the nature of the candidates they have against them and the ability of Newsom to turn up this fantastic team that he has. Nonetheless, when you run for reelection for the big show in 2022, in the midst of a national fight to win the House by Republicans, the backdrop or background of Donald Trump and a whole host of ballot measures that are going to be on the ballot next November to make it the most expensive, even more expensive than November 2020 election ever on the ballot measure side. All of that is going to challenge Newsom and his team to cut through the clutter and the clatter to, to communicate to voters. David, in the remaining couple of minutes of the podcast, before we went on the air, we were talking about the unusual situation where three of the largest, most promising offices in the land Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, San Francisco. Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, formerly District Attorney of San Francisco. Governor Gavin Newsom, who appears on track to win by double digits as governor of California, thereby placing him in very serious contention for the presidency in 2024 formerly mayor of San Francisco. What is it about San Francisco? And of course, we're the San Francisco experience here. What is it? What is it about San Francisco that has birthed these three phenomenal political powers and has rocketed them, you know, from the, the outer suburbs of San Francisco sitting on Ocean Beach or Pacific Heights, or and not to mention Diane Feinstein, who's the senior most member of the Senate. What is it about San Francisco that has produced these leaders? Whether you like them or not, you've got to say that the 49 square miles of San Francisco has done a phenomenal job in producing these three or four nationally recognized leaders. What is it? Yeah, it's it's definitely the water uh, <laughs> from Hetch Hetchy. From Hetch Hetchy, yeah, it's, Hetch Hetchy. it's definitely yeah, it's definitely the great water from Hetch Hetchy. It, it is pretty amazing that the future, the near term future of American politics, that diversity of the ray, that the changing electorate, the the changing of the parties in terms of their leadership and what comes next, and the complexity around that. It has San Francisco is such a central role in that nationally. Obviously. The political opponents of those three individuals group those three people together. And once Cuomo is out in New York, it becomes this place where you're going to push back against the tri- what they call the triumvirate of evil. They take the three of them and they throw them all together and say, this is what's wrong with, with America. It, that, those three 
and particularly I would argue the, the vice president and Gavin Newsom, the governor, can put together some policy successes that craft a new coalition moving forward. They can rebuild, re-energize, and create a new type of party. And that'll be a, a very fine test because it's worked in the 49 square miles of San Francisco. It's worked in California where every statewide office holder is, is a Democrat. Can you do that nationally? That would frighten many people across the country, but at the same time, it alters the dynamic of our politics because this is a place where everything is political. People understand that. And the diverse richness of representation and ideas has been celebrated. And that's, as you know from your podcast and your guests, that's a long-running richness of the San Francisco experience. That's been very helpful in terms of uniting and not dividing. The degree to which those three individuals can create that next mark, I think, will alter our politics for a generation, especially in the midst of such rapid economic, social, and political demographic changes that are all going on at once. Well, David, I'd like to thank you very much for your insights, your knowledge, and your analysis as we go out to vote tomorrow in this second recall of a California governor. Again, my thanks to David McEwen, chair of the political science department at Sonoma State University for joining us today. And we'll look forward to having you back real soon. Thank you very much for having me. And it's a pleasure to be here uh, on the uh, recall election eve. That's that's a, just a great <laughs> opportunity, great time. So thank you very much. Thank you, David. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit my website, to subscribe to the podcast, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast.com. It's free to do so, and by subscribing, all future episodes will come directly to your inbox. You can also listen to the previous 189 shows, read my book, peruse my blog, send me an email, or leave me a comment. This has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, reporting to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.